Heavenly Father, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Use it to mold us and shape us. Make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for providing your word for us. What a gift it is. May we never take it for granted. Would you grow us this morning in a zeal for holiness and for your word? Bless this time as I open your word. And may you and you alone be glorified in the preaching this morning. In the powerful name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So the last time I preached, uh, we were in the book of 1 John, and, and we saw the first four verses of the letter. And it's really just one long sentence. And, and I explained then uh, uh, why John wrote this letter. He lists some, some, some explicit reasons as to why he did that. And that was only eight months ago. So if you would pull out your notes from that sermon, and we can reference that because we're just kidding, of course. I'm going to give you guys a brief recap. Re- recap. So John writes this letter for a few explicit reasons that he tells us in the letter. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, that he's writing so that our joy may be complete. Chapter 2, verse 1, he writes to prevent sin. We're going to see that a little bit later on. In chapter 2, 26, he writes to protect Christians and the church from false teaching. And in uh, the last chapter, uh, 5, 13, to provide assurance of salvation through Christ. But recapping those first four verses of chapter 1, John made one thing very clear. That Jesus is who he said he was. That he's fully God, fully man. That he performed, that he was the one that performed miracles. That, that the stories that you heard about him are true. And, and John saw him with his own eyes. He heard him with his own ears. Touched him with his own hands. Jesus and John were close. He knew him and the message that Jesus carried is the one that John is carrying. And it's trustworthy and true. And this is the message that he and the disciples are proclaiming with their lips so that all may hear. And then he continues in verse 5. I like to read our whole text, and then we'll break it down after that. So 1 John 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God. It's important for us to understand that we were born sinners in need of saving. If we don't know that simple truth, and Ben referenced this earlier in his prayer as well, Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? If we don't understand that we are wicked to the core, then when we read something like in verse 5, that God is light, we're never going to understand it. The gospel won't make any sense unless we start with the baseline truth that we are evil. It's a universal problem. It's not a new problem. This problem existed since the fall of man. The problem is sin. 
And the world today does not like to talk about sin, at least not in a negative context. On the contrary, we look for opportunities as a world to celebrate sin. The idea that we were born sinful, to say the least, is uncomfortable. But that is the truth. We were born in sin. And Paul Washer, when speaking about sin, he says, we don't know how much we've sinned in the same way a fish doesn't know how wet it is. We sin more than we know. And until we can grasp that truth, we won't be able to fully appreciate what it means to be saved. You know, years ago, a couple in our church, uh, church members, Brandon and Nicole Keen, went on a, a vacation to Kauai. It was a quick trip, a long weekend, I think. But upon landing in Lahui, they went straight to the beach. I don't think they could check into their hotel yet. So they go, hey, let's go kill some time. We'll go straight to the beach. Uh, Brandon says they stood there appreciating this beautiful place, this beautiful beach. And they noticed as he kind of scanned the water that there was a man out there that appeared to be struggling. And Brandon thought at first, maybe he's waving at his family. So they continued to enjoy the beach. He enjoyed the company of his beautiful wife and, and, and this, this place that God has made. But Brandon kept an eye on the man. And after a few more glances in that man's direction, he looks to Nicole, takes the keys and cell phone out of his pocket, and he goes, I think this guy needs help. I think he's really struggling. So Brandon, in the clothes that he had on, minus his shirt, he, he jumps into action and starts to swim out to this man who's very clearly on the brink of drowning. And Brandon notes as he's swimming out there, and Brandon's a straight stud. If you haven't met him, you gotta, he's not here this morning. He's working, uh, serving our country as a Coast Guard. He's swimming out there, and he notes that, I don't know that I'm going to be able to bring this guy back in. The current is just kicking too hard. So Brandon makes it out to him, and he confirms that the man is struggling. He is unable to swim in. He says, I need your help. He'd been trying and trying. He can't do it any longer. He's tired. So Brandon tried to bring this man in, and, and it was of no use. He couldn't do it on his own. So Brandon tells the man as they made it to like a sandbar of sorts, hey, hang here, I'm going to swim in and get some sort of flotation device, something, and come back out to you. But you got to just stay here. I'll be back. So Brandon said he had a hard time swimming in on his own, but he made it. Swims in, finds a, a wave storm or, or something similar, and a, another brave young man. And they come out there and they rescue this guy. Praise the Lord, they rescue him. And there was a celebration. This man is leaning on Brandon and just, thank you so much. I, I had no idea. I had no idea when I set out to go in the water that I was in danger of drowning. I'm a good swimmer. I knew I, I, knew I was confident I could come back. But it wasn't until the reality set in that this man looks around and sees, I can't do this on my own. I can't swim. It's just too hard. He understood the reality. And Brandon had no idea when he told me the story all these years ago that it would be used as a sermon illustration one day, but here we are. But church, we can't wander around assuming that we're okay. We need to realize that we're in a similar danger to this man. And we look around and we see there's sin all around us and we cannot make it back on them. We are sinful. We don't teach children to lie. We don't teach them how to, how to be mean. We don't, we don't teach them to be self-centered. They do that all on their own. Sin was with us from the start and we need to realize that before we can ever see a need for Jesus in our lives. We're terrible people. What a great sermon so far, Right? But that's the baseline. This is the baseline for this morning. There's hope. That's our foundation. And we see from our text, let's start in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the message 
that we, we is the same we that he, uh, he spoke about just uh, a few verses ago in that first sentence, verse one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands. Those guys, the disciples, this is the message that we have heard from him, him being Jesus and proclaim to you. The message is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He heard this, remember, from the lips of Jesus himself. We, the guys that walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, touched Jesus, traveled with Jesus, hung out with Jesus, ate with Jesus. We are those guys that heard this message and we're now proclaiming to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The language of light and dark is familiar, especially in John's writings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of shotgun these and, and just, just power through them. You're not going to be able to flip to all these. But just in the book of John, John 1, 9, uh, the true light who gives light to everyone who was coming to the world. John 3, 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because they, their works were evil. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John 12, 46, I have come as light to the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. That's just a few. It's a very familiar phraseology. God is light and he brings and gives light to those who believe in him. And we can see from these verses that there are, there's two types of people. There's two camps. You either walk in darkness or you walk in light. And a deeper look into that last one that I read, John 12, 46, we started in the darkness. And Jesus has come as a light to the world so that everyone who believes would not remain there. We are in darkness and Jesus provides a way out. The message, God is light and he doesn't want us to remain there. My Nestle Allen Greek New Testament Bible translates this verse, verse five, more directly like this. And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that the God light is and no dark in him there is none. Daniel Aiken says double negatives are, are bad English, but they make for excellent theology. When we see a double negative like this, no dark in him, there is none. When we see that double negative, it's a particular emphasis. In our ESV, it does the same thing, but it's a positive assertion. God is light and a negative denial. In him, there is no darkness at all. God is light. Oh, oh, yes, of course, then it's inferred that there is no darkness in him, but he's going to say it anyway because it's a point of emphasis. The Gnostic false teachers would say, Light refers to knowledge, just a knowing. But we know from other places in Scripture, namely the writings of John that we've already referenced, that light means ethical purity. God is absolutely perfect. There is no sin in him at all. No darkness at all. He's completely holy. And we sing those songs, holy, holy, holy. That's truth. God is light, which is to say there is no air in him. There's no falsehood, no injustice, no fallibility, no unrighteousness. He is perfect in every way. No darkness at all. And then John shifts and he, and he addresses this Gnostic false teaching because there are those who say and there are those who do. We know those. We could think of people like that in our lives right now. Maybe we're one of them. There are those who say and those who, those who, who talk the talk, but their life shows no fruit. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
There are people who say that they're children of God and their life just doesn't match up. And you could bet that John had people in mind, namely the false teachers, when he wrote this. The false teaching that he was writing to protect the church from included teachings of this vein. They said the right things, they, but they, they just didn't walk in light. They walked in darkness. And John is saying that if your life doesn't match up, you're a liar. And he includes himself in the language here. He says, if we, he's saying, if anyone, myself included, says that we know God, that we have fellowship with God, that we are close to God, that we have a Christ-like life, but we walk in darkness, we're a liar and cannot be trusted. Our life needs to align with those who walk in the light. And walk here, walking is in the present tense. It's, it emphasizes a continual action. And we see this all throughout Scripture. You've heard it said uh, that uh, your walk, you either walk in light or walk in darkness. Your Christian walk is who you are. It's an illustration of the way that you live. And the truth is something, church, that we live. It's not something that we simply know. We can know it. We could say the right things even show up to church every week, do nice things for people. We could, drink, we could not drink, we could not smoke, we could not chew, or not go with girls that do. I think it's an Alabama saying. We could do all those things externally, but the truth about who you really are is found in your life, in your walk, in your heart. Do you live it? Do you walk it? And you know your life better than anybody else. Are you walking in light or are you walking in darkness? But what is a light? What if we walk in light? Verse 7, if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there's three things in this verse that I want to I pull out of here. If we walk in light, one, we're modeling Jesus. If you walk in the light like he is in the light, he is the one, he is our model, he is our standard. Walk in the light like he is in the light. And if you do, then the second thing, if you walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Listen, the goal of Christianity is not only heaven when we die, though that's awesome. It's not only heaven when we die, but it's Christ-likeness right now. The Christian life, I've said this before, is meant to be lived in the context of the church, not a, not a Lone Ranger Christian. So when we see a word like fellowship here, it's an incentive for us to, to relish in. When we walk in light, we have fellowship with one another. And walking in light is a prerequisite to that fellowship. To have true fellowship, our lives must match with the life that is walking in the light. And as important as fellowship in the churches, remember that this fellowship with one another, which is awesome and good, this is all great, it points to a greater destination. In verse 3 of our same chapter, he says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. How glorious is that? That's where our fellowship ends. It ends with the Father and His Son. So we're mod modeling Jesus when we walk in light. We have fellowship with one another, and then uh, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the third thing. If we walk in light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you walk in light, you're covered, Christian. And this isn't just a one-time cleansing. It's an eternal cleansing of all sin. This is, this is an ongoing cleansing. Just as walking in light is an ongoing walk, the cleansing is an ongoing cleansing by the blood of Jesus. And so it's important to know that we're going to need this ongoing cleansing because, shocker, we're not going to walk perfectly in the light. 
Because if we did, if we did walk perfectly in the light, then there would be nothing for Christ's blood to cleanse. We will slip, but his grace remains and he's faithful to cleanse us. So the three things, if we walk in light, we model Jesus, we have fellowship with one another, and then ultimately that fellowship lies with the Father and his Son, and then we have, the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Amen? Walk in the light. He goes on. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I, I, I thought this, this quote from Charles Spurgeon was particularly spot on, so I'm just going to read it. Charles Spurgeon says this, the idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you and you have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day and you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and weigh your motives or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. We're sinful to the core, church. And if we spend enough time as liars about the way that we truly live, walking in the darkness, then we will end up deceiving ourselves as to think that we're sinless. If we say we have no sin, he says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We need to understand rightly who we are and who we stand, how we stand before God. He goes on in verse 9, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his, and his word is not in us. Let me start with that verse 10. He reemphasizes here the fact that we're sinners. We've already seen it many times. I've told you plenty of times today that we're terrible people, that we, we sin all the time. It cannot be denied. He doubled down on it. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. If we say we have, in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, you make him a liar. We sin. And we heard from our opening scripture there. Paul even talks about it. This isn't just John. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Recognize your sin church. Recognize it. And then he tells us, confess it if you confess it to the Lord. And what does confession do for us? He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess. Let me ask this question. What, what would our church look like or what would our lives look like individually or collectively if we were a church that regularly confessed our sins to God? And I'm not talking about scheduling a time with Dan and Dave to sit down and say, here's the list of all the things that I did this week. We have access to the Father right now. We could confess our sins right now. I'm talking about regular confessing our sins to the Lord, doing a, a scrub test of your own heart, taking inventory of your thoughts and actions on a regular basis, and not just simply feeling bad about it. I, I'm sure you guys have had these moments. I'm, I'm sure it's not just me where you're... <clears throat> You're driving and a thought pops up to your head and you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that 15 years ago, you know, and feeling shame for something. It's not just simply feeling bad about it. Going to him in prayer and confessing, God, I have sinned. I confess this to you now. Even praying this scripture, God, you tell us in 1 John, confess the sins. You'd be faithful to cleanse me. Cleanse me, Lord, I need it. Pray these prayers. Do an inventory of your heart. My guess is, if you're anything like me, confession is something that's incredibly difficult. It's admitting that you are wrong. It's embarrassing. 
It's admitting that you were weak, that you messed up. And those are not easy things to confess. You ever caught your child red-handed? The shame that's there. It's the same for us. This isn't a place that we like to be. But if we confess, there's reason to be joyful. Why? Because our God is faithful and just to forgive us. We stand then clean before a holy God. Rejoice in that truth, church. Get good at confessing your sins. And it's like anything else. It's just, it takes repetition. It takes practice. There's effort that's involved. Jenny always tells the kids at school and my kids and, and me, practice makes, anybody? Practice makes, wrong. Practice makes progress. Because we can't be perfect, right? Ben told me earlier today, practice makes permanent. That's a military guy, you know. <laughs> Keep repetition, let's go. Practice makes, get good at it. Get good at these things. We're terrible people, right? We've established that, but there is hope. And look at the care that John gives here as he continues in in, in chapter two. My little children. I love that. My little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. There's that word again that we heard uh, in our reading this morning. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. These verses here in chapter 2, they're a comfort to us. And I love his tone, the, the, the nurturing and caring tone. He says, my little children, he cares for them. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not have an ongoing, habitual, sinful lifestyle that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. And so what John's trying to do here is bring a balance between these two extremes. There's one extreme that's you're taking sin too lightly. That, oh, I'm not that bad. I, 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 yeah, okay, I mess up. But everybody does. Uh, he'll, God is good. He'll forgive that. And then the other extreme, this Christian harshness over personal sins and the bitterness. The two extremes are equally damaging, in my opinion. On one hand, if you take sin too lightly, then you're self-deceived, as we saw. You believe that you're without sin, and then, therefore, no need for a Savior. The other extreme is just pure legalism. In order to be saved, you must perform externally these things, and do the, but there's no real change on the inside. He's bringing a balance here. We will sin. And we should struggle in that sin. There should be a battle. We should battle our thoughts. We should take inventory. Even Paul admitted his struggle with personal sin. In in Romans 7, I'm going to read. This is is so good. Romans 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is the battle for us Christians. We need to have this. We know what is right. We know what we ought to do. 
And we continually do the thing we shouldn't. And Paul isn't just sloughing off his sin. He's confessing it. I continually do the thing I don't want to do. But there's a reminder here in our text that if we sin, we have an advocate. An advocate. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's our advocate. Can you think of a better advocate than the Son of God? Rejoice in that. That's awesome. Truly awesome. Not in the, the, the whatever the lax phrase for awesome. This is awesome to the extreme. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the whole world. Excuse me. Propitiation is not just a, um, it's more than just a substitute. We heard that word earlier this morning in our scripture reading. It's a word that carries much more weight than that. It's a word that means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, it changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Jesus actually bore the entire wrath of God. He bore the guilt of our sins alone. God the Father, Wayne Grudem writes, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Because there is an eternal, unchangeable requirement in the holiness and justice of God that sin needed to be paid for, Jesus paid it for us and then gave us his inheritance. God cannot let sin go unpunished because he is holy. Remember, perfectly holy, no sin in him. He cannot allow it to go unpunished. Propitiation means that we get Jesus' inheritance. He took what we deserved. We deserved wrath. Jesus' work turns that wrath into favor for us. And that's something we should rejoice in, church. Amen? So what do we do now? Well, I hope, as we bring this to an end, my hope is, as I stated earlier, that we'd collectively care more about holiness. We have a holy God. We're going to sing right now, only a holy God that we would care about holiness more, that we would take inventory of our own hearts, that when we're about to sin, ask yourself the question, you know sometimes when you're about to sin, how much do I care about holiness right now? Walk in the light as he is in the light. Imitate our Lord. Our tendency is going to be toward darkness because that's what we were born in. Model the life of Christ. Confess your sins and be cleansed by his blood. Take your thoughts captive. Evaluate where you stand and where your walk is on a regular basis. Know these truths that we have an advocate, and we could celebrate that. We have an advocate in Jesus, and his desire is ultimately for us not to remain in darkness. And as Christians, we get his inheritance. Cling to those promises. Maybe, maybe for, uh, for some of you, uh, this is new. Uh, you're hearing all of this afresh, you have questions about salvation, ask us, what does it mean to be saved? Uh, find one of the elders, talk to the person that you came with, send us an email, but, but don't let the word of God just sit on your heart and then not do anything with it. Talk to us after service. For the rest of us that, that we're being reminded of, uh, of his grace this morning, be encouraged. 
and his great love for us. Romans, let's end with this. Romans, uh, Romans 5, 8 says this. But God shows his love for us and, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Church, will you pray with me? God, would you use your word to change us? All of these truths that we heard this morning are, are so powerful and, and, and we know where we stand apart from your son. We are sinful, Lord. We confess that sin to you now and we fall short. We know that. We need the blood of your son to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are a mighty God uh, who saves and will continue to save. Would you do that, Lord, mightily this morning? Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you provided a way for us to be with you forever through your son, Jesus. Thank you that his blood cleanses us. Would you move mightily in and through this church and that we would be marked by our love for you, our love for your word, our love for each other. Teach us to confess. Show us our hearts. And please, oh God, please be glorified in our lives. We pray this in the powerful name of our advocate, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.